Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the All Stats Aren't We review of the Aston Villa game and a preview of the Norwich City home game. I'm Darren Driver, the night game at Elland Road optimism of the podcast and I'm here with the stark reality, the numbing realism (laughs) of just how bad things are. It's John McKenzie and finally the Marcelo Bielsa song after the third goal of the podcast, forlorn, full of bathos and regret. Karen, please come home. I miss the kids. <laughs> it's Adam. Adam, how you doing, buddy? Yeah, I'm all right. I, I think we've proved there is a pathway from the 23s to the first team today. After our 23s pod this morning, it was quite successful. So let's hope this one's more of the same. But I'm, I'm well, thank you. How are you doing, Darren? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm just going to say the same stuff I said to you an hour ago, which is that I was on call from work last night after coming in a pretty foul mood after the match and then proceeded to get call spaced exactly 60 minute intervals right throughout the night so I've had actually genuinely no sleep so I feel like I'm in a bit of a bad derealized dream at the moment (laughs) and uh, I'm hoping that you'll snap me out of that. John how you doing pal? Yeah I'm also sharing the nightmare with you so those bits of undigested beef and gravy are floating around and yeah much as it felt as though it was during the game yesterday very discombobulated everything seems to not work and isn't connected but yeah I think I've finally reached the point where I am accepting that there's a strong possibility we may go down yep and we'll we'll get onto that at the end of the Norwich preview but I am I am right there with you buddy um and we were just having a quick look at Burnley's fixtures coming up uh Everton have got some fairly smelly fixtures coming up so I, I think they may stay in there but Burnley have got very very similar run of fixtures to us including games against Brentford Notford, uh, Norwich and Watford not Notford <laughs> Norwich and Watford um, so it will be yeah I think it's a bit of a race to the line in those three games between us and Burnley um, which is going to be going to be exciting and see who can well I say exciting I mean terrifying really and see who can scab some points um, from, from any of the um, other games but anyway this is a, a double header um, episode as we've done where we've got fixtures in close close succession so um we'll be reviewing the villa game and john will be uh, leading that and previewing the norwich fixture at ellen road on sunday and, and i'll be leading that element of the thing so john without further ado i'm gonna hand over to you oh, sorry. 
Yeah, and as we always do in these sorts of episodes, we've got a bit of a paired back review section. So we'll spend the first half just asking some questions about the game last night. Uh, I have integrated some listener questions into our interrogation. So thank you guys for sending those questions in. Lots of good questions. Um, so we will jump straight in then with five questions to you guys about about the game yesterday. So first question, why do we think that this game looks so different to the Leicester City game? We had friend of the podcast, Callum Archibald, writing in to say, is this simply a case of the players not being good enough to implement a new style of play or what? I'm struggling to understand how so many individuals look so bad. Rodrigo, Dallas, Firpo and Harrison couldn't string two passes together and Rafinha looks hopeless. Darren, what do you make of that? Um, I don't know. I, I think I think there are a lot of different elements to this question. Um, I think I think tactically... We we got it wrong last night, and I know we're going to come on to talk about that a little bit more. But I just want to mark out that that I felt that that the way that we set up really didn't, and the way that we tried to play really didn't help the players last night. Um, we have often said um, on this podcast that that there is a view, and I, I know it's not shared by everybody, but I think it probably is my view that that only Bielsa could get an effective tune out of these players, and I, and I am aware that he had stopped doing that. But I am I am a bit concerned um, by by the lack of competitiveness in the game last night. Really, I think above all else. So I, I can I can handle just losing as we did against Leicester, but it just felt like last night that 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 we really rolled over against a significantly worse team than has been given us the sort of hammering that Villa gave us last night. Um, so I think that in terms of like the implementation of the style of play. Clearly, that's not working. Clearly, the you know the the, the different tactical elements, both the off ball stuff um, and the and the on on ball stuff. So, like the the the, the press and the counter press isn't working in a unified way, which means that to an extent, players are making individual pressing runs, which is leaving space open for for other players to pick their way through, um, and that's that's not helping us from a defensive point of view. And and I you know I think I think if you look at a team performance and and you're able to list players um who haven't done well and who have given the ball away a lot in in really high numbers and that suggests to me that that's not an individual performance issue that's more of an issue of the team set up not allowing the players to find other players in space and i think very often last night we we tried to play into central areas where villa were and not and we did use the wide areas occasionally but 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 really you know, we we were really playing into their hands and often either pinging balls just at their centre backs or just giving the ball away. You know, losing the ball in the midfield battle where they were able to step in with their mid block and snap into it. So, I I think I'm more inclined to believe that that, that the issues were were more fundamentally tactical than than to do with the players being you know significantly worse than they have been all season. Albeit they haven't been particularly good all season, and I, I completely. Um, acknowledge that. So yeah, I, th- I think it feels like a combination of things. I think I think Marsh hasn't had time to get his tactical ideas across. I think that's a fair statement. But also at the same time, I'm not entirely sure that his tactical ideas are going to significantly improve the team from the from where we are right now. Yeah, we spent a lot of time on this podcast under Bielsa talking about how Bielsa's system brings the best out of players, mm-hmm. and I feel as though people. There was just there's been a lot of people talking about mentality, and that that is because Jesse Marsh has come out and said after the game that the issue was mentality, and, and I'm happy to accept that to a certain extent. But it does feel very much to me like without that system around them, giving them space, allowing them to know that there will be passes on, so that they can 
release the ball when they're under pressure, all that kind of stuff. Because that now seems like it's gone. It does feel to me a little bit as though, you know, we are now going to see where what level these players are at without that sort of safety net. Well, exactly, and specifically against Villa, who play quite a narrow system, we would we would it meant that we were just playing into congested areas all the time, and that that the sort of angles that used to be worked uh, under Bielsa were occasionally being worked in the fullback areas, but but really not beyond that, and it just meant that 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 everything felt predictable and stodgy, and that we weren't able to to do the ball progression in in any meaningful way at all. Adam, I'll come to you on this. We did have another question which sort of extends this discussion from Dave McNutt, who asks, to what extent was the outcome tonight down to Villa being good as well as Leeds playing poorly? Was the Leeds' poor performance more to do with an ineffective system or ineffective players within the system? Personally, I think it's more to do with the ineffective system. Last night, we constantly were looking for balls sort of clipped in behind. And when Tyra Mings is on the end of them, who's six foot five, he's just able to head it away like as a, on a consistent basis and it was never something that really paid off more than two or three times uh, I could recall when I, I remember when watching it back it, it, it just didn't happen for us in that sense um, we've kind of lost a lot of what was good under Bielsa and we kind of had lost it with Bielsa earlier this season but more having on back to last season the, with wide build up we used to make that as like the primary function of how we would attack and the two main chances we've created under Marsh so far have been from Furpo in the Leicester game when he hit the byline wise and cut the ball back for Rafinha and Rafinha at the start of the second half yesterday was probably the the most threatening cutback that we we created and we're losing that now and if we're trying to play more narrow we played even more narrow last night than we did against uh Leicester and I think that might be partly because of, of the way Villa sort of congest the midfield and do play so narrow like like Darren said um but we need to be doing some of those those things I think the the idea of having a hybrid between a Marsh and Bielsa system for now is probably the best thing for us and I didn't see enough of that last night other than one or two moments I'm just sort of playing devil's advocate a little bit here because if we do try and play a, a, um, a balance between those two systems, Bielsa's system is all about making the pitch as big as possible and Marsh's is all about making it as small as possible. So I don't think that's actually possible. I, I actually do not think it's possible to work an effective hybrid between the two systems um, because because if you get players into the positions that they need to do Bielsa's on-ball stuff, they're way out of position to do Marsh's off-ball stuff. I definitely agree with that that second part about the off ball stuff. Um you're not you're not sort of positioned right to quickly counter press in the way that you you would like. But then if we weren't doing that last night anyway, what then what's the point? But then uh, there were other things last night. Like I I do agree that a lot of individual errors were creeping into our game and I think more in the first half than I've seen in any game this season really and, and a lot of sloppy passes and a lot of things like that. The ref didn't help. He got in the way twice, which really frustrated me when watching the rewatch. Um, and was the Watkins tackle a red card? Things like that. I, I don't think it necessarily changes the game completely, but it's it's just moments like those that maybe go against us that, that don't help anything either. But yeah, I think in general, it was the ineffective system rather than the, uh, the players being ineffective themselves. We're in a strange situation, aren't we, where everyone can sort of confirm their opinion by the the last few results. Um, the people who wanted Bielsa out can say, well, you know, we were bad under Bielsa. We were going to go down anyway, so we might as well try something else. And the people who wanted Bielsa to stay in will say, well, you know, with Bielsa, we would definitely would have won those two games or would have got something out of those two games. And so I, I'm hyper aware that I don't want us to just fall into, I guess, counterfactual history, as I like to call it. But mm. 
with that in mind, let's let's move on to the second question. Um, Darren, in the last podcast, we spent a lot of time talking about the differences between the two halves versus Leicester. So in the first half, we talked about how we could see at least sort of flashes of Red Bull system, Gagan pressing style. Uh, and then in the second half, we, we moved to what looked like more like a, a Bielsa style of play in terms of the build-up. Um, in this game, it just looked like we were trying to play in possession the way that we did in the second half, I thought. Um, so we had a question from Simon who was asking, why do you think that we keep using old build-up patterns, especially centre-back to full-back pass rather than the vertical, much more than versus Leicester? Do you think it's old habits and pressure or part of the match plan? I think that's an interesting question. I think specifically against Villa, the reason we would have gone out wide more than perhaps Marsh would have wanted us to is because they were quite narrow and, and that, that means that that's where the space was. Um, but I, I did notice that, yeah, we, 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 were, we were trying to work the ball out wide early, but it felt like then from that wide area, we were trying to hit quite central areas from with 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 the ball from the fullback areas. So I don't think we were trying to work, work it into the kind of, into wide areas in the final third as it, as in the ways that we have traditionally done against Bielsa. It felt like to me, as soon as we got out that, maybe got out that first bit of, of press, and I don't think you know Villa particularly put us under a great deal of pressure um, there, but but that the full-backs were really trying to either work it into um, Forshaw and Cock, who would then try that longer ball into, into the central areas, or the full-backs were themselves, or Pascal was going into a wide area and himself trying that big, big booming ball. So if... In the times we did go wide, I think it was because there was an appreciation that that's where the space was. But um, at the same time, I don't feel like we fully committed to playing that style of wide play. I think it. I, th- I don't think we fully committed to either Marsh's more compacted, more centralised football, or the kind of more expansive w- w- use of width that Bielsa would use. I think it was just purely situational because of the way that Villa set up. Maybe it is that that whole thing of maybe the hybrid doesn't work, but. I just think with the players we have at the moment, it, it's probably the best thing for us. Um, and I think the few times we did get some joy were using wide play. Question three, Graham Buxton wanted to know what changed to make us more attacking at the start of the second half. Because obviously at the uh, beginning of the second half, things looked a little bit more encouraging for the first 10 minutes. Do we think, Adam, that this was because um, Marsh changed anything or did you put it more down to the fact that he tried to motivate the players over the halftime interval? I think uh, we touched on this last night, me and you, John. Um, I think they expected a reaction and Gerard probably said to them, you know what, just sit in, let the crowd do their thing for a bit and then we'll we'll sucker punch them. Um, so for the first 10 or 15 minutes, yeah, we did look a little bit better, but I think it's because they were deeper rather than we were just pressing them higher and necessarily playing better ourselves. I think it's just basically Villa were deciding to have a more of a low block than a mid block just for that 10 or 15 minute opening period um, and then obviously they grew into that half and, and really did kill it later on um, and they did hit us a few times in those fullback areas uh, during this this period as well it was always one of Dean or Cash pushing up at least and or Ings or Watkins were also pulling wide to help help out in the wide areas for them and, and they were able to get out and that's eventually what killed us later on, but um, that was their out ball in the start of the second half. And I mean, with Dean's quality on the ball and Cash's energy, it was it was always going to end up uh, that they were probably going to come out on top if we didn't take a chance early on, and we didn't. So no, I don't, don't think anything changed really. I think I think Marsh just probably got into their ribs a bit at half time, got everyone a bit fired up, and then they they kind of 
you know, put a bit, of, you know, played with a, a high, slightly higher level of intensity for ten minutes in combination with the with Villa being a bit deeper and trying to take the sting out of the game, mm. as as you've just described. I, I don't think anything particularly changed. Question four. We had a question from El Barker who sent in a question about the switch from Bielsa to Marsh. So she said, "Have we just traded a decent attack and a bad defence for a bad attack and a marginally better defence?" Uh, obviously, this is maybe in danger of. Um, having a rose-tinted view of how things were but Darren what do you make of the question? Yeah I mean like you say I, I think I would take issue with the idea that Bielsa's attack was functioning uh, in those <laughs> last few weeks but having said that we did make some decent chances in the Spurs game and I think I think that, that it felt more possible I guess but having said that like this is we are very very early into I, I'm going to try and be fair we're going to be very very early into Jesse Marsh's reign um, so I don't think we actually fully know what either the defensive side of things or the attacking side of things will look like with these players. Now we can, we, we've looked at obviously looked at his, some of his previous teams and seen how it operates there. Um, but I, I do feel like last night we, you know, it's inarguable that we had very very little threat at all last night, and I don't think we were that defensively solid either, so I don't, I don't necessarily even follow that we had a marginally better defence of that last night, because I thought we looked very porous. Um, so, I don't know whether we look at this game and go, well, nothing really worked in this game, and we move on and try and develop and try and take the tactical learning and, and all the rest of it into the next game, or whether we go, actually, this is a really, really worrying sign of where we are for the rest of the season. Now, last night, I was very much in that second bit I was like oh no this is it everything's done just forget it we'll be back in the championship next year this morning I think well you know maybe maybe there is stuff that that he can work I mean he's probably not going to be able to work on anything significant between now and Sunday but but um yeah I I I think it's probably too early to to tell with El's question really well I don't necessarily fully agree with the question but at the same time I take Darren's point that maybe it's too early to say. I, I do think it's just a poor attack's got worse and a, a very poor defence has maybe got better, but it's two-game sample size. It's, it's probably too soon to say. Um, I don't actually think Villa had to play really well last night in order to beat us. I thought they were decent, but I don't think they were like particularly great or outstanding. I think we were just very poor and we played into their hands, as Darren said. Um, that when we go narrow, really suits them when they've got the four one two one two diamond uh, quite narrow with the central midfielders on, and uh, Coutinho dropping back in and they could just overload the area and win the ball and, and counter us. So uh, I don't think it was it was a necessarily us being great defensively or offensively. I think the XG was the worst we've had since two thousand and sixteen or two thousand seventeen something like that against Brighton in a two 0 loss where we had the ball. Uh, very little because we had 10 men and and yet we created less last night with 11 so that says it all yeah I do think that what I touched on before is is uh, is is important that that the Bielsa system is about creating yeah opportunities for a team that maybe doesn't have the technical players and I am again with the caveats about sample size and and giving Marsh a fair hearing I just don't see his his sort of aggressive direct counter-attacking counter-pressing style necessarily being more productive for us I think that in those sorts of systems you actually benefit from having the better technical players than than your opposition so I'm just thinking to his time at RB Salzburg where he was playing that system with players like Minamino 
uh, Erling Haaland, Pats and Dakar, like players who are just overpowered for that league. And and obviously they generated a lot of chances in that way because they have the technicality to get out of compact spaces and and expand the ball, uh, expand quickly and, and move the ball through the through the lines. Um, and I'm just not really seeing us being able to do that right now. So I I, I do think we need to give time to Marsh, but I also kind of think like. What 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 is the feasible endpoint of this? We can still speculate on on what we think the ingredients are going to look like with the with the right mixture. Sure, but I I think that I think that the best that we can hope for is that that, that the compaction that he's working towards starts to appear because at the moment it all feels very stretched, both front to back and and in terms of width. And in the in the videos that you posted, John, when Marsh was appointed, I said to you that I was really surprised by just how compact the, the whole unit of the team was. And that's definitely not what we're seeing at the moment. So if we can increase that level of compaction and therefore increase a bit of panic in the opposition, we might be able to create some more chances from it. That's kind of the best I'm hoping for, really. I don't, I don't have wild expectations that we're going to suddenly become this incredibly creative team that are going to start creating the sort of chances that we created when we were doing well under Bielsa but I do hope for a lot more than than was provided last night I guess the question is whether you think that the Leicester game's the anomaly or of the Aston Villa game's the anomaly and the way Villa play maybe didn't suit what we had last night but then against Norwich or against Brentford or against Watford those games that matter we, we might better them just because their system doesn't necessarily suit playing against ours but I guess we'll see it does raise the question as to whether that was exactly the situation when we had Bielsa as well, but um, let's not open that can of worms, I suppose. Right, question five. Jesse Marsh talks a good game, but does he have the ability to make tactical switches within games to solve problems that arrive uh, arise sorry, during games? Uh, Adam? Uh, I thought all of the positive, all of the substitutions last night were positive um, in some way. Like I don't think Gellhart did much amazing things but in the sense of he's a striker coming on it's a change and it's a forward change so that's good Bamford I thought looked okay considering he's meant to be slightly broken still uh and I thought Click came on and made things a little bit better even though he didn't have a long to do it so in the in the sense of personnel wise I think there is a, a way to do it um we'll come on to some of the other stuff a bit later but I think that that progressing through the thirds is something we're going to have to do better at and if Ailing is now going to be shifted over to right back, then maybe we need to do it through central midfielders rather than centre backs, because obviously against Leicester we saw that outball a few times where he basically is able to pass not just through one third but two thirds all the way into the final third. So if we have a player that can do that somewhere centrally, whether it's a centre back or centre mid, that'd be good. Um, and don't just hit the channels as well, because uh, especially when you've got Tyrone Mings, like I mentioned, he's just going to mop everything up that we we throw at him. And I don't want to see that again. Um, I, and I think we need to recognise where width should be used uh, in certain instances and 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 use it to our advantage. I'd, I don't. I know you disagree a little bit with that, Darren, in terms of the counter-press and, and funneling the ball centrally very quickly when that needs to happen. But at the same time, we know the best chances we've made so far under Marsh have come from trying to get to the byline and cut the ball back. And if Bamford is playing, if he does start, then that's another thing we should definitely be looking to do because he, he does love that sort of goal where he, he drifts in and, and he goes unmarked and someone cuts the ball back to him. Yeah, Darren, um, I have been in the group chat getting quite frustrated at the way that Jesse Marsh seems to be PRing a lot in in 
his approach to the what's going on at Leeds and obviously that sort of approach is important it, it, like positivity is is going to be very fundamental to whether or not the, the Leeds players can get out of this hole um, and also you know the, the you know it's it's generally good to to have that that sort of positive attitude however um, the question that I've asked here I suppose is motivated by my worry that that actually confidence positivity are things that are influenced by a system which allows you to be confident and positive. Um, and again, I suppose it raises the sort of question that we've been asking the other way around um, about the about the Marsh system, which is if that system doesn't allow these players to have the freedom on the ball that they, they had before, that allows them the space and time for them to be better than the sum of their technical components, then surely the, the, the issue then comes that, that if the, the system isn't helping then it is just going to make the players less confident and there's no there's no amount of turd polishing that you can do to to, to overcome that problem, right? Yeah, I completely agree and um, I was incredibly, incredibly frustrated throughout the match last night because I appreciate that Marsh's football is, is all about compactness, right? And the idea is that you, that you can leave players free on the other side because you can compress into the space, stop them, stop the switch. Last night, we weren't able to stop the switch from wide areas, which meant that we were constantly being overloaded by Dina and Cash in wide areas and exposing um, Junior Furpo very often to a two-on-one with um, between Ollie Watkins and, um, and, and Matt Cash. Um, and the uh, the coach did absolutely nothing about it, and no amount of platitudes about confidence and about energy and about effort and about yada 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 is going to stop the fact that they're getting an overload. That that is purely to do with the distribution of players across the pitch and how we chose to uh, attack that. So for me, I, I share your concerns about the on-ball stuff. But also, I think that if you've if you've got a player where where if you've got a situation where you've been killed constantly out wide by two players and you do nothing to address that, that is really worrying to me. Um, and and you know, I I don't care what he tried. He could have tried a number of things in that situation to rectify that situation, and he did nothing. He just left the situation exactly the same and allowed them to continue to expose us in those areas to the to the tune of the first two goals, which both came from exactly that situation I'm talking about. Frustration for me is that we saw this against Southampton in, an, in what is a similar system under Hassan Hootel, where Ings and Watkins were overloaded in wide areas. One of them, at least, would always pull out wide, allow Coutinho to be freer, and we did nothing to to do anything about that from the start when we knew that's what they were going to do again um so that's more frustrating for me so i I definitely share your concern john from a probably slightly different point of view but yeah I, i do I think it's also worth saying that there's only so much you can really do when you're playing a Gagan pressing system if you're going to be focusing on compaction. Um, because people talk a lot about about saying, well, Jesse Marsh uses a lot of different formations. And that is true, but the, most of those formations are relying on the ability for you to get as many players in central positions as possible. Um, and so, you know, th- this is this is precisely the issue, right? If, if, if oppositions are going to be happy playing width against us, um, there's only so many things things you can do you can switch your forward triple two to a four four two diamond to try and just get a little bit more width out of your central midfielders um but the the reality is that you are still going to be doing compaction on one side or other of the pitch when they're building up you're going to be compacting through the center when you're doing your own build up um you're always going to be leaving space and i suppose that's that's kind of the gamble the gamble is like how good is your counter press 
if they're able to play through it, then you're just open. And that's kind of the situation that we're in now that we, we yes, okay, maybe in the future that counterpress is going to get good. But right now we need to be winning games, not just experimenting with a counterpress to try and get it right. Absolutely, yeah, and that, and that's what I mean, really. That because it was so clear that the counter press wasn't working, that was allowing them to just repeatedly kill us with that width. So, so in that case, you know, like if you if you're a bit pragmatic, you can go, well, we'll, we'll give up on, or we'll sort of pause that idea that, we, and we're going to try and manage the game in front of us right now. And and I just feel like we did we just didn't do that. We kept trying to play to this this principle, which is which the players obviously don't fully understand yet, or haven't fully kind of engaged with, or don't fully know how to operate it in a practical situation. I'm sure theoretically they understand it perfectly fine, but but in terms of the practical application on the pitch, it's definitely it wasn't there last night, and so therefore we just allowed Villa to have the space that they needed to to beat us, and that that's what frustrated me. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Well, that brings us to the end of the interrogation. So over to you, Darren, for the Spurs preview. Thank you very much. Uh, the Norwich preview, John. It says Spurs on the running order because I forgot <laughs> to change it. <laughs> Can we not play Spurs again, please? Yeah. I'd rather play Norwich. <laughs> okay, so this week, John spoke to Jacob of the Canary Cast about the downfall of Farker Ball, Dean Smith working against the clock, and about being resigned to relegation. <sighs> So, Jacob, hi, how are you? Yeah, very good, thanks. Join yourself? Yeah, I'm doing okay. We've both just been commiserating about support, supporting <laughs> clubs in a relegation battle before we started this. So, um, yeah, it's it's certainly not ideal for, for both of us, but I, I suppose we have the slight high ground on you. But, yeah, it's not, not been a fun season for you guys, right? It's been a long one. I'm sure you'll agree. It's, uh, yeah, it's felt a lot longer than, you know, eight, eight <laughs> months or so. It's uh, aged us all, I think. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's a massive game on, on Sunday. I know we've got uh, games both uh, prior to this recording. Um, so, yeah, we'll uh, we'll see what those results will be. But, yeah, big, big, big game on, on Sunday for sure. Mm, yeah, I should say we are recording this before the Leeds game against Villa. So, yeah, thanks for clarifying that. It feels... Like ages ago that I last spoke to you guys from the Canary Cast, and since then we've both gone through managerial changes. So first things first, what have you made of the Dean Smith era in Norwich? Yeah, well, before uh, well, the Leeds game was really the one where we we looked at it and thought Daniel Farker's times up. There was long aimless passes and just no real structure to to what had been before with Farkable, which had been so well praised of, of a lot of possession, a lot of really nice passing football. And yeah, that was the one, the, the straw that broke the camel's back before we, uh, before the, he went on or beat Brentford and then was sacked. Um, 
Yeah, Dean Smith's an interesting one. What wasn't going to be the first choice because when we'd sacked Daniel Farker, he hadn't yet been sacked by Villa. Um, he, he's come in uh, with a lot more um, kind of, uh, I'd say, British kind of uh, nationalism, whereas, you know, he's, he's like, we can go and beat these teams. We have had better results. He obviously won his first game, was unbeaten in the first three, and then uh, prior, a little switch round in the new year where we beat Everton and Watford back-to-back, then drew to Palace. And we've just uh, missed out on uh, kind of a few recent results because of injuries and the squad's not deep enough. He has improved it. I would say if he was here for the whole season, we would stay up. But yeah, those first 10 games have killed us really. And, and the squad depth. He's, I think if he, he stays around, gets us back up, I think we have a much better chance of staying up under him than we would under Daniel Farker. Mm. At this point, how resigned are you to the fact that you're getting relegated? Is it a foregone conclusion? Yeah, yeah. I think um, after after the loss to Brentford, that was the big game. Everyone looked at it and thought, you know, we lost disappointingly Southampton didn't really lay a glove on them, and then you and obviously we had a kind of Man City and Liverpool before in between those as well, where that, they just impossible games really for us. Um, yeah, that the Brentford one was a real kind of key hitter and <clears throat> should have scored in the first minute. Milot Rashid had a glorious chance which he has to put away and that's a lot of Norwich's story really start the game well have a good chance miss that good chance and then just give some easy goal away we've uh, in the last three games just given away to Peters men who are completely free either by a flick on or <clears throat> just at the back post just completely free and it's his schoolboy defending at, at best really and that's kind of summed up Norwich's season we're not good enough defensively and we're really not good enough going forward so yeah unfortunately I, I would be it would take a miracle for every team to drop at 10% level and for Norwich to raise their game 25% for us to even scrape survival. I, I just can't see it happening, unfortunately. I personally get wound up that Premier League fans use Norwich City as a bit of a whipping boy when it comes to a club model. Um, so I'm interested in how you feel about being a sustainably run club, which has ended up yo-yoing in recent seasons between the Premier League and the Championship almost by necessity. Uh, it must be more satisfying than supporting a super club that just throws money at problems in some ways, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating one, especially as you ask it now, because obviously now yeah. we a lot of the fans feel um, kind of resigned to relegation. You do get a lot of uh, dealer out <laughs> on, on kind of your social media, where we, we, every Norwich fan understands that they are the perfect owners in terms of, like you say, sustainably look after the club. We haven't gone and become a Portsmouth, a Berry, a Bolton. You know, you can list off so many names of, of clubs that have tried to go for uh, foreign ownership or big money owners, and, and it just hasn't worked. Even like look at Derby, for example, at the minute. Um, we're, we're so grateful that we're not that. We're just we're just so short of money. The Premier League has gone to a different stratosphere in terms of money and wealth, and we're just nowhere near it. You know, we, we gambled. 30 odd million by selling our best player in, in the summer and that for us is huge money but for everyone else that's that's nothing you know City can go buy a reserve Man City can go buy a reserve centre back for that kind of money it's just, just crazy crazy kind of levels now and like you say it, it does get frustrating because it's more the Premier League's fault and you know the, just the kind of insane money that's there now whereas Norwich literally our owners don't take a single penny out and without kind of you know bouncing between leagues that's the only way we can go up and down because even in the one of the lowest budgets or what is especially one of the poorest owners it's a little bit of a miracle really that Norwich do kind of keep finding themselves going back up again I think people have taken that for granted a little bit especially after the, over the last 10 years or so um, yeah it's, it's frustrating because if you could get Adelia Smith with, with I don't know 100, 200 million more in kind of in investment then brilliant but yeah like you say I'd much rather 
sell my place in the Premier League and sell my soul for, you know, just any kind of uh, an extra three or four places in the Premier League. You've suggested that if you do go down, you would like to see Dean Smith stay. Could you expand on that? Yeah, I think it's a difficult one because his football at the minute is is so is so difficult to really put pinpoint because it, it's not his squad. And you can tell that the, the, the likes of Timu Puki, who was so good under Daniel Farker, um, that, that he kind of pinpointed that system so well with the kind of low through balls and Timu would dispatch them. Dean Smith, you can just tell. We've got Adam Eder, who's unfortunately injured at the minute. That's his kind of forward. So a bulky number nine who will kind of hold the ball up, run the channels, and we've just not got the squads that is, is kind of, you know, kind of just so different from the Daniel Farker system. Uh, we kind of do need a bit of an overhaul, really. Um, I think he's got enough about him. He did a brilliant job at Villa to get them up after, you know, them kind of loitering in the middle of the table, those, those 10 wins in a row and, and winning the playoff final. I, I just think it'll be it'll be very interesting next year. There's going to be a lot of change. I think Norwich really relied on staying up this year to kind of really kick on. That's not going to happen now. It's going to be a lot of change. So I think he's he's definitely the best now we can go for uh, going forwards. Well, let's talk about the tactics under Smith. You've mentioned that it's a little bit hard to, to put your finger on what it is that he does, but it, it does seem as though he's tweaked things quite a bit in his time at the club. So many of our listeners won't have watched much Norwich under Smith. So could you describe his tactics to those people? Yeah, so under, under Daniel Farker, it was always 4 2 3 1. You always knew what you were getting a lot of the ball, a lot of trying to pass out from the back, very modernised way of playing football. And in the Premier League a couple of years ago, we tried that. And unfortunately, better teams, you know, very quickly pressed us and hassled us. We just didn't have the, the physicality needed. Dean's come in and, and was uh, playing 4 3 3. So kind of had um, a man kind of as a, as a centre of which was by Norman before his injury, then two central midfields in front of him. And more kind of more crosses, which we never did under Daniel Farquhar. I can't remember a single cross in a game. It wasn't our style. And then in in the new year, Adam Eder kind of got a little bit more confidence, and we went four four two, and then hit the channels a lot more. Kind of if if in doubt, put it down the line, and Adam Eder or Jimmy Puky would run for it. Puky then kind of dropped off if it was Eder kind of running running the channels or or vice versa. Um, it helped a lot being like Rashisha on the on the left hand side and Josh Sargent on the right were were kind of uh, really just running the show in terms of getting the ball very quickly out wide to them and then whipping it in and and it was helping Norwich a lot more. We were being a lot more direct and against the teams that were better than us. If we were under the cosh, we would just put it out down the kind of side of the channel and it was effective against Watford. We won deservedly won in the end and against uh, against Everton as well deservedly won and it was just in that January we thought if we could just get one more striker in because we only had. Eder and Puki, and, and both of them have had injury issues before. So we could just get a couple more in, then we would be able to really compete throughout the, the relegation zone at this point. Unfortunately, we didn't. We didn't ever look like it. Our, our sporting director, which is a running joke around the, the fan base at the minute, was actually uh, climbing Kilimanjaro at the time. So that's, uh, that's an unfortunate one. But, um, but yeah, and Eder's then got injured. And now we're in this 4 3 3 again, which doesn't work. Pookie's isolated up top on his own and, and as you'll see will give up quite a bit of possession I think at Ellen Road and and really kind of look quite passive our only real outlet is Milot Rosicca who, who can run but then normally runs out of energy towards kind of the 60 minute mark and then Norwich really don't have an outlet we've got nothing really on the bench we've got a young lad John Rowe who is playing well well um, amongst the level he, he should be having to because we just don't have anyone else really to kind of contribute so but yeah it's, it's a difficult one at the minute we will drop back we will look to counter-attack um it might be effective in the first five ten minutes but i think you'll quickly realize it will just be going play down the left 
a middle teacher who would take on a couple of men and then lose it. That's that's pretty much Dorridge's game plan, to be honest. At least structurally, I was looking through some of the formations that you've been using uh, in mm-hmm. the last couple of months, and you've used about Dean Smith has used about five different structures in the last mm-hmm. couple of months. So, why do you think this is? Is he just trying to find a system that works? Yeah, so in December we had a lot of injuries. We we got some kind of embarrassing defeat, really five 0 to Arsenal, three 0 to Palace, and it was literally play, uh, playing fringe players who were fringe players last season and just not having them them fit. And it was just trying to find a system and kind of a style of play which would stop Norwich getting backwards, to be honest with you, because we were just so short of quality. Then, like I say, in the January, Adam Eda came back from injury. We had a bit more of a fitter squad and played four four two. It helped Norwich's strengths a lot more just by getting it, getting the ball into the danger areas quicker. And and since that injury happened, like I say, he's had to revert back to 4-3-3, and it just doesn't really work. We, we, we've got a, a lot of midfielders who are a good box-to-box, but aren't very good at anything else, which is, is difficult when, when you need goals at this level. Timmy Pukki's got seven, I think the next closest is, is someone with one. So it's it's a real challenge in terms of the goals. We, we don't look like a threat. And defensively, we just give away too many chances. There's either a lack of quality in terms of the defensive positioning or just switching off, which is the set. You look at the Brentford goals, if you if you do beforehand, there's a couple of penalties and just the corner we gave away is, is, is less than championship level defending, really. And it doesn't help when when you're, you're conceding two or three and have scored less than 20 goals a season. You're just never going to get points and win games. Josh Sargent is someone who's seen his role change a little bit under Dean Smith. I think you mentioned it before, but could you talk us through that change? Yeah, so, so he was he was signed as a centre forward, um, kind of looked that upon as as Timmy Fuki's backup, um, and he's very very raw. Um, he's only twenty two himself, and like you say, under under Smith, he's kind of been used as a right winger if he, in the four three three or on a four four two as as kind of a right side midfielder. Um, that's because, to be honest, he, he can't really play with his back to goal very much centrally uh, and his shooting is, is sporadic at best. So he's very, very good at work, working, kind of uh, helping covering the fullback and, and will run all day until, until he's, he's kind of, you know, lost all energy and has to be substituted. Um, his lack of quality on the ball, like I say, is compensated by that fitness, but that's the reason why he's in that four four two. He's good physically. He'll, he's, he's six foot two. He's, he's broad. He, he knows how, how to kind of draw a free kick and be able to kind of uh, put pressure on, on the opposition fullback. Nothing kind of epitomises that better than his, his second goal against Watford, where Milot Rashika crosses in from the left-hand side. He, he bullies the left-back and wins a header and bullets it into the, into the bottom corner. Unfortunately, he's just not got the, the technical ability yet to be able to compete at this, at this level. His, his touch is very loose. He's not really got a, a weak foot. He does sometimes hold on to it a little bit too long. But saying that, he's got a lot of potential, like I say, fitness-wise. He's he's fantastic. He's a real, real athlete. And that's the reason why he's been kind of moved to that right-hand side to kind of accommodate his, his flaws and try and really work on his strengths, what they are at the moment, really. And Sergeant is one of a fairly large tranche of players who were brought in in the summer. So looking back with, obviously, hindsight bias, but would you say that it was a good summer of signings or a bad summer of signings? Well, yeah, you look at the position, you have to say say poor, really. Um, the, the problem was last season we had Oliver Skip on loan from Tottenham who, who ran the show in kind of defensive midfield and, and broke everything up. He was good on the ball and also fantastic at winning it back. And obviously Emiliano Buendia, who was right-hand side midfielder, who everything went through last year when Emmy got a couple of red cards, which he was, he was well known for. Um, Norwich's structure just 
didn't reel at the day and there was no real kind of way of, of, of playing really. Um, it, it was go through Buendia last year. He was a bit of a cheat code, to be honest, because he's just he's so good. 15 goals, 17 assists. You can't replace that. And and to sell him for 31 or 32 million up front, 38 overall is brilliant. But to replace that is 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 very, very difficult. We, we've brought in players who are not ready yet. And that's that's probably an issue, really. There's only one in Pierre-Lima who's kind of played at the top level consistently before, as, as well as Milot Rashica. And, and it's just those two have looked in flashes that, that they are good enough. The rest, you can just tell, have, have not had enough kind of uh, top-level first-team football. And it's, it's unfortunate. I think it'll be very interesting to see who Norwich keep hold of. I think Rashica will have kind of admirers definitely think he'll he'll be gone because he's got pace he's got the ability to, be able to improve as well at, at 24 he's, he's no age so has at least a, a few years left necessarily hits his peak unfortunately we've just not got enough squad depth um like i said earlier we, we're using players who who were, who were substitutes last year and and if you, if you can't do that in the championship we, we probably had a squad a stronger squad overall last season with with skip and buendia and the replacements just haven't been good enough. Christoph Jolies at 19 was a really high kind of high prospect. That just hasn't worked out yet. He might be a next year job. But unfortunately, in Norwich's position, we had to really think a little bit more smartly and think, you know what, we need players more for the now rather than looking at the profit later on because it's, it's risky keep dropping down. It's a lot more difficult to get back up to the Premier League than it is dropping out of it that, that we've, we've kind of seen. So yeah, unfortunately, poor. There's been, there's little bright sparks there and potentially, like I say, with the likes of Sargent and Jolice with, with, with uh, kind of time on their side. Hopefully they can come good for Norwich if they do stay around and want to stay around. And, and, and you know, in two years' time, we could have, be having a completely different conversation about this transfer window. But for this season, it's not being good enough. We, we will be going down. So that has to be kind of looked at as a failure, really, unfortunately. So in terms of the players who have been important for you this season, who are the, the ones that we should look out for this weekend? Uh, Brandon Williams has been really good on loan from Manchester United. Uh, left back, he, he will really enjoy that that uh, that Ellen Road kind of fierce uh, atmosphere as well. He, he he really does thrive off of that if they boo him as well. Because obviously being a Man U player, then then um, yeah, he, he'll absolutely love that. He's, he's he loves the crunching challenge. We missed him really in, in the reverse fixture. I think um, Andrew played left back first time ever against Rafinha, who skinned him a couple of times. Um, I know. If, Seen a couple of league fans say Rafinha's been out of form recently, so I'm not sure if he'll start. I, I personally would start him, but Brandon will love that battle and has, has really shown some character. Even though he is just a lone player, he's he's really played with his heart on his sleeve this season and, and shown a lot of good performances. There, there'll be Premier League clubs uh, ready to snap him up for sure if Manu decide not to use him next year. Uh, Milan Rashika as well, like I say, left-sided winger, very traditional, will just run with it, very quick. Um, would like to cut in. He's not very good at shooting as of yet. Um, that's that's probably his main weakness. He's only got one goal this season, but um, yeah, he, he's he's the main threat really. And and Timo Puk is, as you guys remember from a, a couple of years ago in the Championship, if he does get a good chance, he will score goals. Seven goals this season for him is is a miracle to be honest. Considering we scored, I think fifteen off the top of my head. But for a team that don't doesn't fit his his style of play, he's he's remarkable in terms of his his goal return. To be honest, it's it, uh, no, no other forward would get more. In, 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 he's just unfortunately very poor going forwards. But I'd say those main three, to be honest, Grant Hanley's been very good at centre half, or is very good in terms of Norwich terms when we conceded so many. Um, uh, a proper captain, proper leader, and, and will uh, will battle, especially at Leeds. We did really well a, a couple of years ago when, when obviously it was the top two battle. We have to kind of 
try and do that again, really. Completely different Leeds team now, to, obviously under Jesse March. Um, but yeah, uh, it's, it's a big ask, but Norwich need to step up and really try and put on a performance because whilst pretty much every Norwich fan is, is resigned to the relegation, this is the game to kick it off if there is any sort of revival, really. How do you feel about coming up against the lead side of Lead side have just brought in a new manager this weekend. Do you think it's a good time to play us, or do you think there's just too many variables? And obviously, people like to talk about the this fabled new manager bounce, etc. All depends on this Villa result. To be honest, I think I think um, if you if you were to beat Villa, then the pressure's off a little bit more. If Villa are to lose, or if you to lose to Villa, which potentially after they played really well at the weekend. Um, then all the pressure is on Leeds because Norwich come into this no matter what. I think, we'll, I think we'll lose to Chelsea tonight if we don't. Brilliant, but I'd be surprised if we if we would result. There's there's no real pressure on Norwich to be honest. So we'll all be on Leeds and it depends how the fans are brilliant, you know. But we, we hope to silence them, and that's what Dean Smith will be saying: silence them as, as, as quick as you can. We did that a few years ago with, with, when we won there. With that that is the kind of the main thing to do. On Leeds' um, kind of negative thoughts, really, the longer the game goes on and Norwich are in it, Leeds will feel pressure. Um, we've conceded sloppy goals, we have to cut that out against offence uh, to Leeds here, a relegation rival. If we can drag you guys in, then it's a huge opportunity for Norwich. It's, it is a must win in a way for Norwich, but then everyone is kind of written us off, so it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Um, but yeah, under Marsh, I, I watched the Leicester game. I still can't believe he didn't win the game. So many missed opportunities and played a lot better, obviously, about the kind of man man marking. There was a lot better structure. Leicester didn't break you down as easily. Um, it's just that kind of transition period, isn't it? Obviously, about Bamford, you guys know yourself. It's with the likes of Dan James, Rodrigo, they've got pace, but do, do they finish the chances when they're needed? Clearly not. They, they missed so many good chances against Leicester. Um, Norwich will need that luck because we will give you opportunities. I know Bamford could be back always. Uh, Marsh said he's back for tonight. He probably will be back and score against Norwich as well. But um, but yeah, we just have to keep it tight. And, and really, the, the first goal, I think, will be key in the game. It sounds like you've got quite a few injuries um, ahead of this game. So what about the injury suspension situation? Yeah, Andrew Bamadele and Adam Eder are both out. Uh, Max Aaron's should be back now. Hopefully, they have a little knock. So he, he missed uh, the, the Brentford game. And Byron was in. Aaron was on the bench. Um, so yeah, without either, we do only have Pookie up top. Um, but that's that's an issue. But uh, yeah, it'll be it'll be very similar to the games or the team we've had recently. Billy Gilmore is ineligible tonight against Chelsea, so he'll probably be back and starting on Sunday as well. Would you like to hazard a guess at that lineup then? Yeah, so this will be be an interesting one, depending on you know the results tonight. But off the top of my head, it'll be a four-three-three. Cruel will be in goal. Either be former league player Sam Byram or Max Aaron's at right back. Centre backs will be Hanley and Gibson. Brandon Williams will be at left uh, left back. Uh, in the defensive midfield slot will be Matthias Norman. I'd imagine the central midfielders will be Billy Gilmore and Kenny McLean, much Norwich fans to spare. Um, Josh Sargent will be on the right hand side. Milot Rashik will be on the left, and Timmy Fuki will be up top. And I never ask for predictions on this podcast, but what I do ask is where you expect the game to be won or lost. So, how would you answer that question? <laughs> all on that all on that that pressure that first 15-20 minutes that'll be if Norwich kind of if they get through that then they've got an opportunity we tend to buckle though under that kind of pressure all depending on on how, how long Leeds fans are willing to stay with with their team because Norwich will give opportunities away there's there's no no uh, 
no kind of more guarantee than Norwich giving opportunities away at this level. So that first 15, 20 minutes are key. If Norwich get a goal in that time, then it's big, big pressure on Leeds. So yeah, first 15, 20 minutes, we can keep it tight, keep the game close, get everyone's kind of nerves playing up, then that that's that's where Norwich can grow into it and potentially win it. But if Leeds get that first goal in those in that time period, they will go on and win the game. Well, Jacob, it's been great having you on. What's the best way for our listeners to catch what you're putting out at CanaryCast? Yeah, I'll be, yeah, thanks very much for having us on. Um, yeah, CanaryCast everywhere. Just <laughs> You can find us normally ranting on social media about uh, what's going on at the moment. But uh, yeah, you can find us everywhere, CanaryCast. And yeah, thanks very much for having us on, John. Well, thanks so much for coming on today. No worries. My absolute pleasure. And best of uh, bad luck for, for Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so in that interview, I was very interested to hear Jacob say that the game against Leeds was the was the thing that killed Farkaball, and I had to remember Norwich giving us a really difficult afternoon and, and nearly beating us that afternoon, so it's interesting that that was the, the final bullet. <laughs> okay, so let's think a little bit about what we're going to do on Sunday. Um, John, I'm glad you'll be there to restrain me, should I choose to. <laughs> start throwing things at Victor Otter or whoever <laughs> might be around on Nearby on Sunday. So um, I'm hoping that that you'll you'll look after me on the day. It, it seems likely that Norwich might play with a four four two, as Jacob said. Um, but I do note that they've also played a three five two and a three four three recently. So we might see a slightly different formation. But um, given that our formation isn't tied to the opposition in the same way that it once was, do you expect Jesse Marsh to continue with the 4-2-2, or 4-2-2, I should say, the 4-2-2 that he's uh, been trying to implement so far? Yeah, I don't know what would necessarily induce him to change this formation. Mm. Um, we know that, yeah, like you say, Norwich are probably going to play a 4 4 um, there's there's different options available. They have played other formations. Uh, we saw yesterday that when Villa were using their fullbacks to get width and and using their uh, forwards to to help out with that wide build up, he didn't exactly change the structure. And as I've said, like really, all you can do in that situation is maybe switch to a four four two diamond yourself, and that just means you go with a single pivot. Maybe they didn't want to go with a single pivot yesterday because of Coutinho. Um, but if you go with a single pivot, you can then have two wider wider midfielders. I actually thought in the second half yesterday, Robin Koch almost played a little bit further forward than, than a lot of the time, although I don't think they ever really went to that, that diamond. Um, but I think there is a possibility he could change to that diamond. But beyond that, it's hard to, it's hard to know what he would do other than you know you're you're sort of hitting that panic area where you're thinking this isn't working I'm going to just try a different formation which is what happened at at RB Leipzig but it still took him a a good few games before he hit that point Um, interestingly RB Leipzig when he was there they did have a squad that was much more suited to playing uh, 3-4-3 which is what they went to Um, and I, I think you could argue that we probably have the same situation uh, albeit albeit our left wing back now doesn't exist um <laughs> so whether or not that changes things I don't know but um yeah that's the only thing that I could see changing but I don't think that's going to change until it gets to a point of no return probably and he just starts messing about okay so let's think about the team Adam would you expect Dallas to go to left back given given Junior's injury I mean that looked that looked serious didn't it Yes, I do, to be honest. Uh, I don't think there's many other options. I think unless you do something a little bit crazy, like put Harrison at left back, which I don't agree with, but uh, some people have said that in the past. Or um, 
we could play Shackleton at right back with Dallas at left back to keep Ailing as a centre back. And I do want to give Ailing a little bit of credit. I think in both games he's probably been man of the match under Marsh so far, so he has kind of stepped up. Um, and I don't really want to take him out of there if he's if he's playing well there, but at the same time. It probably is just going to happen anyway because of the Furpo injury. So I do expect Ailing to move to right back, Dallas to be at left back, and then we'll see on centre back pairing, I guess. I agree. And John, do you see? So assuming that Ailing does move to to right back, do you do you expect to see Urente or or Cock play as the right centre back? I think probably Urente, just because we're losing a player, so you've got to bring another player in rather than shift players around. So um, I guess also if you've persevered with Robin Cock in the in the pivot, then it makes sense to keep him there. John, do you think Robin Cock looks better when he's played as a single pivot or as or, or in this double pivot? I'm just interested because I know that you'd watched him quite a bit at Freiburg and, and you'd said that he looked a bit less confident and a bit less competent in a double pivot in that system. And I'm just wondering, just off the top of my head, what, what your thoughts are about that? Yeah, I think the, the Bielsa system gave him a little bit more time and space on the ball, which allowed him to progress the ball fairly well. Uh, I think this system doesn't necessarily suit him that much I don't think I don't think you need someone who's going to be really defensively sound in that position because we have you play a high line up against your your double pivot and you end up with a sort of situation where you almost have like a six a mm. block of six I noticed mm. Stephen Gerrard actually talking about this as well but back six yeah the back six where you have your two in front of the back four and that part of the issue I think is that with this system is that if you can get in behind the the front four press You've, you've come up against this back six and the question is how quickly that front four get back. There was a few times I noticed in the game and obviously that was what happened in the Leicester game for their goal. Um, there was a few times it happened against um, Villa as well where you, you beat the press, you get in behind and then you, you, essentially what the back six is trying to do is just hold the ball up until the rest of your team can sort of get back into a defensive shape and that as the game wore on, we were less and less eager to get back into that but that situation but sorry I am rambling a little bit here but the, the, it does mean that the pivot positions are expected to do very different things they yes they they are expected to be defensively sound but not to the extent that they are in a single pivot under Bielsa because that pivot is doing a lot of firefighting defensively um, but they also need to be better on the ball particularly under pressure because um yeah, because you are compacting space in the middle, you are going to try and build through that space, and you are going to play this um, up, back, and through approach where the the, the centre back is going to play the ball through to one of the the, the wide players, um, and they're going to play it back to one of the pivot players who can then look to get the ball forward to one of the strikers. Um, so you're you're you do need to have pivot players who are good on the ball as well. So um, yeah, I can't even remember what your original question was, but do I think that Cock is better in this system or the the previous system? Though? So I phrased it as as single pivot versus double pivot, and I think what I'm hearing you saying, I agree with you. It's not so much about single pivot versus double pivot because we've occasionally played a double pivot under Bielsa. It's more about the stylistic. Yeah choices that are made in build-up right yeah and and when we talk about pivots actually it's, it's important to say this i think because often you can talk about you can talk about a double pivot in terms of having two players who are going to roughly line up next to each other so like a four four uh, four two three one um but in build-up you could easily just go to a single pivot the pivot when we when we talk about pivots really we're talking about what the team are doing in the build-up phase um, and the, that's why I sort of mentioned before that actually Robin Koch, it seemed as though he was being pushed forward in the build-up phase at times with Matthias Click or Adam Forshaw being the, the pivot, so the player who's moving around helping to facilitate the build-up. Um, so yeah, in terms of the in terms of the pivot play, then 
I think that he's he's probably not going to play as a single pivot in this system, even if we're playing a double pivot, if that makes sense. Um, because because I think that Jesse Marsh wants better ball players uh, um, and better press resistant midfielders in in the deeper position in build up. Um, whereas, yeah, I guess for Robin Cock, yeah, he is there for his defensive um, his defensive stuff. But actually, in in possession, he was being pushed forward a little bit more. I thought um, at times. But again, with the double pivot, you have the possibility of switching who your pivot is going to be. Right, that's the beauty of it. So if if Cock is slightly deeper in the build up, then then Forshaw will be further forward, um, and vice versa. Uh, but I do think that the what we were seeing yesterday was an encouragement that Cock would be getting forward more in the build up phase than than the other pivot player. Okay, so Adam, how do you expect the midfield double pivot to be formed then on on Sunday? Do you expect it to be a continuation of Cock and Varshaw? I think if you're asking me what I expect, I'd probably agree with that and what John's just said. But in terms of what I want, it kind of ties in with what John's just been talking about. If Forshaw or Click is the one that's dropping deeper to get on the ball, it's for a reason. It's because they're better players on the ball. They're more press resistant. They're going to progress the ball better than Cock can. So my idea would be potentially to not even start Urente to play Cock as a centre-back next to Pascal and play Click and Forshaw together and, and I think if you're worried about defensive solidity and, and compactness in that sense I wouldn't be as worried against someone like Norwich I don't think it's as important I think it's more important that we can actually progress the ball you know through the pitch through the thirds and if we have two players that are better on ball players then I would do that and, and as John said Marsh likes those two players to be at least competent on the ball and, and in Click and Forshaw you have that so I would personally rather see that and give us two options that could could help progress the ball better I think it's worth saying that I said that I thought Forshaw would thrive in this system and I don't think he has I think of the two Click has looked a lot more suitable Agreed. to this system yeah. so it'll be interesting to see whether or not we go with Click and Cock at the weekend because um, that would seem to me the, the most obvious choice I think Forshaw snaps into the counter press better than some of the others um, and I think that might that might see him stay in the side, but I do agree with you that you think he struggled in some of the possession phases more than I expected him to. Okay, Adam, who who are going to be the strikers? This is a really interesting one. Personally, I thought Rodrigo, I know it was sort of everyone was pretty poor, but I thought he was probably our worst player. I wasn't surprised that he was substituted. I would drop him, and if Marsh is the kind of coach that rotates a lot, then, then that's certainly something that I would do. I would, if he's fit and he has had a good week, it is all about how he does this week in training, I think. Or, well, it's not even a week, it's a few days, isn't it? If we think he's ready, then I would start Bamford and I would start him with one of James or Gellhart. And I don't know which one. I can see upside to James. I can't believe I'm saying that, but I can see upside to him him starting. Um, but then again, Gellhart has been positive in, in patches. So Bamford with one other, I would be okay with. But I, I personally want to see Rodrigo come out and maybe make an impact off the bench, which is something that, that Jacob's talked about a lot on this podcast and how we think he's more impactful off the bench coming on to make a difference in maybe the last half an hour of a game. It's a more of an effective substitution. So I would do that personally, but I don't know if Marsh will. Um, we'll have to see. And who will play the half-wide roles, John? Well, from what we've seen so far, it's Rafinha and, and Harrison. And I don't necessarily think that he's got a huge amount of flexibility there to, to try, try anyone else. Um People have talked about Mateus Click, but I think Click suits the pivot roles really well, and so I don't see Marsh wanting to change that. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think we'll, it'll be Raf and, and Harrison again. So in terms of the tactics, I don't see much value in, in breaking down this game tactically specifically because of, because we're a bit of a mess 
And I think Norwich are also quite limited in terms of their tactics. And um, so I thought it might be useful to just try to have a constructive discussion about what improvements we can expect to see in in the following five areas. So the um, forward press. John, we've been using really a a simple ball out to the fullback um, as a pressing trigger in the opposition's deeper areas. Um, Do you think we're likely to see any other layers of complexity added to this? Because I'm not really seeing any other triggers at the moment that that are are making people spring into a press. Yeah, when it comes to pressing, I think there's there's two things that you do. And the first one is you have like really obvious triggers. Um, So that can be like, as you've said, and Jesse Marsh, I think, has talked about this in some of his many, many uh, seminars that he's given on his own tactics. But likes to talk, doesn't he? Yeah, he he gives he he likes to have the the pass to the fullback as a pressing trigger. Um, and early on in a system, and there can be any there can be any other number of different triggers, right? It, and it can even be like the first player moving for us being the trigger for the other players to move, right? So when when the, when the forward decides to make that pressing trigger or the wide um, player decides to make that pressing trigger or make the move usually it's the forward trying to cut off the line between the two center backs so that you're forcing the ball onto one side of the field you're making the pitch smaller which is what you want to do and then suddenly you can you can almost go man for man in those in those areas and 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 then compact Um, once you once you have those sort of basic triggers down you then start working on I guess the fluidity and the the coherence of of the of the press because in many respects it's not just about seeing a trigger and going this is now the moment from which we we start our pressing sequence it's that you want your players to get to a point where they they just sort of have a sense that a press is about to begin and so they're already getting into the right positions for where they should be so that when when that trigger is actually played you can then you can then get into into position or you can then all all click and snap we talk we talk about it is snapping into the press i think uh, a lot and that's the thing that we're just not seeing at all so we're seeing a lot of the the forwards doing the right pressing triggers although i do think there is a little bit of messiness there but um what we what we're needing to see now is is a little bit more of a of a I guess I to talk about it in terms of like murmurations of starlings when when they're flying around and and you see them all sort of moving as a unit and it and it's hard to dis- distinguish the the sort of the the individual brain functions of each of them it seems as though they have the shared brain function and that's what you're trying to get to with the with the forward press and like you say we're not seeing that at all at the moment so so it's like a collective anticipation that needs to improve almost absolutely yeah. 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 Okay, Adam, let's talk about the counter-press because we don't be, seem to be able to create any danger or panic in, in central areas or around them to win the ball back and to start create chances. How can we change this by Sunday, Adam? Come on. Well, this is an interesting question, actually, because I think Norwich this season have played a lot of sort of 4-3-3, 4-2-3-1, but if they are to play a 4-4-2, I actually think this could play into our hands a little bit. The idea of, of springing a counter-press to score within 10 seconds but having sort of four central players on two central midfielders means that we're going to be able to do it a lot easier. Um, that if, if you can get Norman pressed really well, you can win the ball back quickly, we might be able to spring some attacks from that. So I actually think we might see more of it this game than we have against Leicester or oh, Aston Villa. I think their four four two really does play into that. We've only seen it a few times against Leicester and we didn't really see it at all in action against Villa. But if it's two central midfielders, even if they're Norman and Gilmore, players that are comfortable on the ball, I think there is a way where you can get two attacking midfielders, two defensive midfielders, really 
compacting that area and winning the ball and and then we might have that chance of springing a ball over the top for Rafinha or Bamford or James or whoever it is and and scoring within 10 seconds which is something that Marsh's systems often do try to do and I think there definitely is more more scope to do that this game. John we said that that Villa really exploited us in wide areas last night and we know that from what Jacob said that that Norwich are likely to try and work the ball wide and and put crosses into the box so do do you think we'll be able to manage their their wide attacking threat on Sunday? Yeah, again, this comes to the, back to the counter-press, right? So the idea of the counter-press is if you can stop them from having easy outballs, then they shouldn't be able to utilise players on the opposite side of the field. So one response to that is get your counter-press sorted out. The other one, I suppose, is what I was talking about before about that fallback phase where if the counter-press is broken, then what you've got to try and do is you get your, your back six holding the ball up as long as possible so that your teammates can then get back into position. Um, and that tends to be a 4-4-2 block so you are nominally dealing with width there um but again like if if that ball goes across the field like the issue is is that you're you've got a, a fullback isolated against maybe a few players um we saw that against Leicester so what happened in that situation was that there was just an easy one two around Dallas and then and then um Harvey Barnes was in um so yeah it's it's tough but this is the gamble and this is like this is how tactics work you you pick your tactics because they give you an upside and a downside and at the moment it looks like we're enjoying the downside more than we are the upside so um it's it's just a case of like the system slowly improving the counter press getting better and and not having so many of those situations where the where we need to fall back into those into that 442 low block um because every time that you're doing that, you're putting yourself at risk of of the opposition generating quite a good chance. And this is I said this about Leicester. I was I was a little bit more down about the Leicester game than a lot of people, uh, because I think that in the first half in particular, they just got through our forward press so much and generated these sorts of potentially dangerous situations, and we got away with it. And and the issue is is that you know the the, the greater volume of those situations that you invite, the more likely you are the opposition will generate uh, big chances. So yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a gamble, and at the moment we're not quite getting it right. But that's because of all the caveats that we've said with with respect to we've not had time to really get everything right yet. Adam, how are we going to build up? Because it's looked very stilted and predictable and like blocky so far um so how can we move the ball through the thirds more effectively on sunday and and will norwich allow us to do that i think i have touched on this but i, I will just go over some of the points quickly again i think if ailing does move out of center back then you need midfielders that are good on the ball so that's why i've mentioned click and foreshore I, I don't think they will start together but it might be something if it's not going well at half time that we see quite early on in the second half because i think that will help progress the ball better through the thirds i don't think robin cox the guy for that i think Ailing was quite effective against Leicester at doing it, but he was stopped very much against Aston Villa from doing much of that at all. Um, I also don't want to see those balls over the top. We, I want to see passes into the attacking midfielders um, doing things that they need to be doing uh, rather than pinging it down the line for a striker or attacking fielder to try and chase or or get over the top. And if it does work, then it's great, but it doesn't. It hasn't been working. So yeah, I would I would lose a degree of of sort of defensive sustainability. Um, to just gain a little bit extra in possession and and have that extra extra ball progressor, I think that's the way you can progress through the thirds. But again, like if we can make that midfield really compact and win the ball quickly, it might not even matter about progressing through the thirds. It might might be all down to transition and counter attacking through counter presses. Where are Norwich going to give up chances on Sunday, John? 
Yeah, I suppose this is the interesting one because, you know, Pep Guardiola has this phrase like, all I can do is get my team to get the ball into the final third and then it's up to them to do stuff. So for me, a lot of this just comes down to, like we saw it against Leicester, like we generated chances, right? And okay, we didn't finish those chances and you dis- you get disappointed about that fact, but at least we were getting the ball into the final third and generating those chances. We just didn't do that against Villa. And so for me, the big question is, is this going to be a game where we do generate those chances? And if we do, then we have a chance of coming away with a win. If it's a game like the Villa game, then we aren't even getting those chances. And so that that's the big worry for me. So um, I think if we can if we can progress the ball well and um, and get the ball into that final third, then we will invite chances to be created. So I know that's a bit of a maybe a bit of a cop out answer, but. Um, that's just that's just the way football is. That's what football managers are trying to do. You know, there's an extent to which you you can't walk the ball in for your team, right? And that's that's the issue that Bielsa had, I think, um, towards the end. And that's definitely an issue that we're seeing now. It's just kind of you get the you, you generate those chances, and sometimes, you know, your you, your team are on form and you win four, uh, sorry, three two against West Ham, and other times you you generate a decent chunk of xG like pretty much 2xg against Leicester and you don't score anything so okay so I'm going to ask you a question I'm going to connect it to the wider narrative so um, where will the game be won and lost and if we lose what does that mean Adam oh dear the second part of that is is a question isn't it really is I think personally the first goal is so important in this game and not least because we're at home and with the crowd I think they're going to be nervy as it is so if we can score first do we go on to win? Probably. And, and I'm going to say that now. I think that is quite likely. Um, however, if we concede first, we might just lose the game pretty quickly. And, and Tom Wilson's been doing some good research and I hope he's put it out while we're, as we speak right now. But um, when we've conceded the first goal, we pretty much capitulate and, and a lot of games this season have gone on to concede a second within 16 minutes or around 16 minutes I think it is so if we can get the crowd on side by scoring early ourselves we'll be okay but if not Norwich might go on and, and I don't think they'll hammer us but they might well beat us and, and the crowd might might get lost in all of that as for if we do lose what does that mean um, well I will certainly have wet the bed completely and <laughs> will have lost my head. I, I don't really see a way back after that. I think we're, we're almost running out of games now of, of games which are particularly winnable. This this little run that we had starting with Leicester and ending, I think it's with Southampton, was, was where the points are, are going to be won. And we've only got four games left of this run now. So we really do need to see sort of seven or eight points come in minimum. So if we lose this game, we're running out of, running out of time, really. Um, so, it, yeah, it'll also reaffirm my position on Bielsa and and that we shouldn't have made the decision until the end of the season if we were going to make it I think it was was stupid and and wrong to do it now I think he should have been held off until the summer personally John yeah where we're going to win the game is if we can progress the ball well not just possess it but progress it and if we lose yeah we're down basically I agree okay good talk (laughs) (laughs) Um, nice and cheery yeah for what it's worth I I think that would significantly increase the chances of relegation. Okie dokes. John, what's been going on on the Patreon this week? Yeah, so we had a couple of pieces up. Pieces? Videos. One from Josh Hobbs looking at Mateus Click in the double pivot, so covering a lot of the stuff that we talked about today. Uh, and then my piece was just looking at the difference between the first half and the second half and, and, and what transpired. So, yeah, if you... 
like the idea of finding out about why things aren't working or are working in the case of Mateus Click, then www.patreon.com forward slash all stats aren't we? Excellent. Okay, so we will be back on Monday with a review of the match. But until then, listeners, enjoy the game and have a great week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.